Hi, everyone. Raghu Marcus, back with the last time we did this, Jack, actually, because I, I listened to it. Uh, Jack and I did a podcast around his new book, which is still new, No, no Time Like the Present. And uh, I said, yes, I'm introducing uh, an old friend, and people would say he's low-hanging fruit as far as a uh, chatting with uh, a guest on Mind Rolling. And uh, so here we are again, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dispel that whole idea of low-hanging fruit, uh, especially with someone like Jack. I am low-hanging fruit. I know it's true. <laughs> yeah, I can feel the the fruitiness part is certain, <laughs> and I'm hanging lower as I get older too, yeah. and my whole body is sort of drooping in different parts. But yeah. anyway, sure. Yes. So welcome back, Jack. Thanks. And uh, so uh, we're, I just said to Jack off off the air that uh, there there are so many different. Um, it's such rich material in this book that we could do five podcasts on it. And so there are some things that I didn't get to last time. And there's some other things that I want to chat with, uh, with Jack about. And, uh, uh, let's, let's start with something again that, um, is, is very topical. I actually want to read something. It's a quote in your book that, uh, I think is so directly, uh, affecting and, uh, just, subject matter that uh, is undeniably something that we we are all involved with thinking about uh and it's uh who is it i think it's a quote from uh well you then think it's who is it i'm going to read it and then you're going to tell me because i didn't write this down um I keep encountering young people who, in spite of all the evidence of terrible things happening, also give hope. There are hundreds of thousands working for the good everywhere. To be hopeful in hard times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness, what we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember those times and places, and there are so many, where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us the energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. The future is an infinite succession of presents. And to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. If that doesn't apply to us right now and is addresses especially next generation uh, concerns and, and possibility of just getting just out and out depressed on a daily ba basis, seeing what is going on in this world. I don't know. It's H.L. Mencken, I believe, right? Is that correct? No, it's Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn. Howard Zinn, who was the author of The People's oh. History of the U U.S., a very uh, powerful read uh, and volume about our whole national project and development from the earliest days 
but written from the point of view of the farmers and the laborers and the slaves and women, people who are all written out of history. Mm. Um, and it's quite magnificent. And what Howard has to say there is truly the result of years of his own teaching and uh, being one of our great contemporary kind of social philosophers. Mm. The truth is that, you know, the news, um, which has caused so much anxiety for people, you know, and there are these really big problems about the environment or about continuing warfare and racism and, and injustice and economic inequality and so forth. The news almost always focuses on the negative. Um, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, and basically, during the course of this podcast, there will be one billion acts of kindness and care, people helping one another in all these ways. And the ones that make the news will be that minuscule fraction where somebody hurts another person or someone gets overwhelmed with uh, anger or fear or, or uh, prejudice and so forth. And we get a really skewed view of who we are as human beings. We also get a skewed view because sadly the dynamics of politics and especially of electoral politics is that people get elected on promises to protect you and usually or often that's done by scaring people. If we can scare the populace, that was H.L. Mencken, then we get elected. We will save you, we will protect you from blank and blank can be the immigrants or the Mexicans or the gays or the blacks or the browns or the yellows or the communists or the Muslims, or we have the enemy du jour. Mm. Um, and we project it out as if something out there is um, dangerous and these politicians are gonna make us secure. But the truth is that we are already secure when we know who we are. Not secure in the sense that things won't change, not secure in the sense that we won't grow older or that, you know, that life doesn't contain joy and sorrow and gain and loss. That's human incarnation. But when we know that who we are is awareness itself, is consciousness taking human form. And then we can play in this human realm and do beautiful things as a bodhisattva, as a being who cares for the world and not be hooked by the um, fear uh, and terror, not let the terror outside, um, which is being spewed by the media, not let it terrorize our heart. Because we are, we are bigger than that. We are freer than that. And that is our birthright. Mm. There's a, an, another place in the book where uh, I like this. Uh, it's, a, it's a quote uh, that, uh, from Dr. Rachel Remen. And it's a, I guess the Spanish word is carencia. If I'm pronoun I don't speak Spanish, but if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, and it's, it's the job of the matador to know where the sanctuary of the bull would be. To, to be sure the bull does not have time to occupy, occupy his place of wholeness. So it's, it's the safe space in our inner world, what we're talking about here. And I think uh, in terms of what um, 
the the uh, quote that we just read, uh, the idea that we need to find that safe inner space. I've actually noticed, Jack. Um, I've I've been um, uncharacteristically alone over the holidays. My wife went off to India, and I I've had more time to spend with myself. And a little bit more time to a sit. dangerous, a dangerous proposition. Yes. <laughs> yes. How are you? How are you surviving? Well, I'm surviving, <laughs> and uh, and I'm noticing. Talk this. That's why I brought this up. This safe space in our inner world. There's. There, I'm getting a little bit more continuity of that inner space and relating with that place. I'd love for you to talk more about how people can enter into and create that. Uh, safe space in, in our inner world? Well, our culture keeps us busy most of the time. Now we're multitasking, we're doing other things, and we're looking at our little screens at the same time. Um, as Albert Einstein was reported to have said in Scientific American, if you can drive safely while kissing a girl, you're simply not giving the kiss the attention it deserves. So <laughs> we live in this way um, in, in our modern society that fragments our attention and keeps us busy almost in an addictive way with news and busyness and contact with other people and doing work and so forth that we lose touch with ourselves. And of course, when we first try to slow down for some people, it actually can feel unfamiliar. Like, what do I do? Um, my friend, Danny Lamott writes, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, you know? So we have this, okay, well, what will I do? I'll be bored. I don't know, or I'll have, I'll have feelings or whatever it happens to be uh, lonely or something. But if you tend your inner life, which is what that beautiful passage of the carencia of the place of wholeness that the bull finds in the bullfighting ring, by walking in nature, by taking time to meditate, by spending time um, listening to sacred music, by, by connecting with your own body and heart. After a while, your whole nervous system, the alarm of it, learns to settle down more and you can return to that place even though you have obviously busy and active engage times and from the place of stillness you can both see more clearly you can love more attentively because you're actually present in your body and heart and being and more than that there's a vastness when you get quiet you sense not just the little dramas of your daily life or week but you feel as we are here around the solstice and the new year, the turning of the spheres and the seasons, um, and that you're part of life. Your life is coming through you in this vast turning mystery. And you can take your seat, if you will, in the center of this mystery and know that you are connected with it and part of it. And it changes everything. Mm -hmm. Without presence, it's very hard to love because we're scattered or we're lost in a fantasy of the future or a memory of the past, the only place we really can love is where we are in the present. Mm. And so to be present allows us 
both spaciousness and stillness. And ironically, in the stillness comes deep connection. And I think part of it that that uh, is is really important is the the word safe, because many 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 people these days, of course, do not feel very safe. And yeah, they're being told they're not safe over and over again yeah. by the news. Yeah, yeah, and everything around them, and uh, and it's not a matter of looking for. Well, let me make a billion dollars and I'll create a wall and guards and I'll be safe. It's uh, obviously not that. But the safety, I mean, again, I'm, I'm relating to my own experience. The, the, I think safety, safe content, I think, is a good um, corollary to safe. Uh, us being content in, in the moment, in the presence that you're, that you're talking about. But That's the, beautiful. That's beautiful. And the truth is that our notion of safe is... Um, childish in a certain way. We get worried about, I don't know, airplane crashes or terrorist attacks, which are scary. There's no question and terrible. Um, but more people die driving their cars, you know, or slipping uh, on the floor in the bathroom when they step out of their shower by a hundred times than terrorist attacks. And yet we're not afraid to go in the bathroom, you know, and we fly all over the place. Um, Helen Keller writes, security is mostly a superstition. Children on the whole realize this and understand it very well. Um, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Um, and the idea somehow that, you know, we're supposed to, build the walls and save the money and have the relationship where that person won't change and we won't, and everything will be secure and safe is a fiction. There's a deeper safety and the deeper safety my teacher Ajahn Chah called the, the wisdom of uncertainty or the wisdom of insecurity. And people would ask, about things they were worried about or concerned or even things they just want to understand. Tell me about meditation. Tell me about enlightenment. And he would laugh and smile and say, it's uncertain, isn't it? <laughs> and you ask something else, he'd say, it's uncertain. <laughs> and he said, become comfortable with uncertainty. Um, and this wisdom of insecurity means we know things will change, that there will be praise and blame. There will be gain and loss. Um, there will be joy and sorrow. This is human incarnation, and we can't protect ourselves from that. No amount of money can protect you from gain and loss and pleasure and pain. Um, and no relationship can protect you. What is safe is the awareness itself. Awareness has the, loving awareness has the capacity to hold it all in a wise heart and say, yeah, this is human incarnation. And now what seeds will we plant? How will we respond in this world of the opposites of praise and blame and um, joy and sorrow? And that's the place of security. The security that we know that the heart is big enough to hold it all, the great heart of compassion and awareness. And that then we can respond 
So it's a, it's a radical act to come back to ourselves and to find that place of trust that we, again, could call the wisdom of uncertainty and say, it is uncertain. Let's not fool ourselves. And here we are with life renewing itself. Every morning at breakfast, you have a whole new birth. What will we do with it? It's just like the grass that pushes itself up through the sidewalks. Life constantly renews itself. Um, and we are life renewing ourselves. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, brings up impermanence, which is an extraordinarily important subject. And of course, Buddhists have discussed this and for thousands of years. And uh, loss is very difficult. Um, in fact, right in, I'm right in the midst of it myself, a uh, deep loss of somebody who I cared for very dearly. And, uh, and I phoned a friend of mine uh, in India, who was very close to this being, and who, in my mind, is an extraordinarily advanced being who had been with uh, Neem Karoli Baba for since he was a child, and and we were just talking about this loss, and he was, I mean, he was very broken up uh, about the idea basically, of the impermanence. He'll never be able to have that, the quality of the relationship that he had with this being. And I was, uh, you know, he just set me off into into this terrible <laughs> feeling of, of loss and not being, I had, I thought prior to that, for the few hours prior to that, the I was dealing with it, but the, 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 there's the philosophizing about impermanence and then there's the moment-to-moment thing and being human. And there's such a, a, a tough juxtaposition in, in that sense. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, I know you well, have gone through it yourself very recently. So this is yes, not news. This, this year my twin brother died and I spent a lot of time the last two years being with him in hospitals and transplant and all things like that. And it was very difficult. Um, I could feel it resonate deeply in my body, all that he was going through as a twin. Because we are, we are beings of paradox, of multi-dimensions. Um, and so grief is actually important. Um, there are beings that we love. There's this life that we love and connect to. Um, and my dear friend, Maladoma Somme, who's a West African shaman and medicine man, also has a couple of PhDs from the Sorbonne and Brandeis and so forth. So very elegant medicine man. He said, when he first came to the U.S. after some really couple of years of very powerful shamanic training and initiation, he said, and his energy body was open, he said, your streets are full of the ungrieved dead. Mm. He said, what kind of society is this? People who died who were homeless, people who died in old age homes, people who died in ICUs tended by caring doctors and nurses, but not with their family. In our culture, he said, the Dagara people, um, 
we grieve everyone. Each person learned in grieve. And that passing and that willingness to let ourselves feel the tears and the connection and that we won't see them in that form again. Um, that grief is really a way of honoring our own heart's caring, our own love. So the grief you feel for the loss of this saint in India that you've known and loved, um, of course, you should weep. And you should allow that. And grief has its own life and rhythms. And you also know that it's just part of the story. Um, it would be too easy kind of to make a spiritual bypass and say, well, everything's impermanent. So, yeah. and she was a saint, she's fine and I'll be fine and so forth. And, but then your heart is closed. So you let it touch you, you weep, you weep for all the losses today, for everyone in the world that shares this tenderness. And at the same time, you also understand at the deepest level that she hasn't gone anywhere. That death is a death is a fiction. That we return, we are consciousness re returning itself, as Thich Nhat Hanh likes to talk about. He says, you look in the sky and then you see the most beautiful cloud, the color of it and the shape and the form. It's like, oh, this is just the the most enticing cloud I've ever seen. And then it gathers more fully and then it dissolves and it turns into rain and it waters the land and the earth and eventually goes through the rivers and streams back to the ocean where the sun heats it up and it becomes yet a cloud again. He said, that's who we are. Who we are is not, death is not some final moment. Death is the changing of consciousness in some way. And truth to tell, Sidi Ma, who you were talking about, she's still here. You can talk to her, you can listen to her. You can't touch her body anymore. But there are other ways in which there's, if anything, more of her, because she's everywhere now. Wherever you go, you can say, hey, I need a little conversation with you, heart to heart. Mm -hmm. um, and so we carry both truths. We carry um, the tears, and they're not just personal. They're also in our grief we enter what is called the tears of the way, which is to say there's a poignancy to life that's ever-changing. And um, when the heart is open and allowed to be touched by the world, there's an unbearable beauty and an ocean of tears. And this is what human incarnation offers to us. Mm. And from this place, you can both honor the waves of grief, because grief comes in waves, as you know, like the waves of the ocean. And you can also be the ocean and say, yes, the waves come and go. And who we are is the vastness. Who we are is consciousness itself. Mm. So, yeah, and I go through the same. And I wouldn't want it any other way. I wouldn't want to be, oh, yeah, everything changes, and I'm chill with that. Um, I want my heart to be touched. I want to be able to weep. And then I want to also be able to laugh. Both. Yeah. Actually, in the book, you talk about, uh, you quote the Native Americans, I believe, grief brings a person closer to the great spirit. 
It's a little similar to our friend who is quoted as, suffering brings me closer to God. So, yeah. Yes. There, there's another, uh, so now kind of turning a little bit to giving people an idea of that consciousness from which we can see and experience in the way that you've just uh, explained. Uh, and it's the concept of the, the one who knows that's, that's in the book, actually. And, um, it's about, as your heart opens, as you've been speaking about it, you can rediscover the vast perspective you'd almost forgotten, the spacious mind. Um, talk about the one who knows and that perspective. Well, one of the ways that I understood this came very early in my practice and training in the forest monasteries at, when living as a Buddhist monk with Ajahn Chah, because he, I, I was trying to have all these meditation experiences and I was having all these interesting, you know, lights and visions and dissolving body and all kinds of cool stuff. And I'd go and tell him, he'd just smile and say, carry on, you know. He didn't really make much of a fuss about it as good Zen masters don't. And then I heard the story he, uh, that he told to some of us. He'd been in the forest himself for 10 years as a young monk doing very intense austerities and living in caves and living out where there were tigers and um practicing in such a way that he too both overcome a lot of inner and outer obstacles and then had visions and light and deep insights and expansion of consciousness. And he went to the greatest master of the time, this other Ajahn, Ajahn Man, told him all about it, said, do you have any advice? And Ajahn Man looked back and said, Cha, you missed the point. The point isn't to have experiences. They're just experiences. It's like being in the movies. There's a romantic comedy and a war movie and a documentary and, uh, you know, a love story. And he said, those are just movies. He said, the only question that matters for freedom is to whom are they happening? Who is the one seeing these movies? Turn your attention back, said his teacher, Ajahn Man back to the one who knows, to the knowing itself, mm. which, which Ramdas calls loving awareness or consciousness, and become the witnessing to all things, become the one who knows, become the knowing that sees the dance of life from a place of timeless peace, of an eternal presence. Because the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Can we as human beings be connected with the sacred and the spiritual and the great turnings of the galaxies? And when we are connected, then it brings both a, you called it contentment, a, a, a deep sense of connection with all life. And it also brings a kind of fearlessness because then we can go out and mend the world and work for justice or do things that, you know, really stand up for those who are vulnerable 
and so forth. But we don't do it out of anger or fear, which just makes more of its opposite. We can do it because it's us. You don't say, oh, my poor left hand, I heard it on the stove. Maybe I should help it, and the right, I'll send my right hand over to help. You, you immediately tend it, tend to burn. It's us. It's, it's part of our, our life body. And from this place, um, one of my teachers said, wisdom sees that I am nothing. From this place, the sense of separateness dissolves. And love sees I am everything. And between these two, my life flows. So from this place of witnessing, of being the loving awareness, we both contain all things, and yet at the same time, there is a spaciousness and freedom to love it all. The one who knows. Mm, I love that. Um, there's another something from the book, and it's... Uh, you have all this book, by the way, everybody. I think I said this last time when we first talked about the book. Is as usual, if you've ever been with Jack, uh, there are so many different sources of quotations to enunciate uh, these concepts. They're absolutely wonderful. Not to mention all the stories. Uh, it's just very rich with it. So great, Jack. Um, there's but a German Zen master, so I'm introduced to many of these people, like I didn't Annie Lamont, who I eventually have done some podcasts with, and, and Jack introduced me. I didn't hear of her till Jack mentioned it. You know, Jack comes to every year to our retreats with Ramdas, so um, I'm getting educated slowly but surely. A German Zen master and psychotherapist, Karl Fried Durkheim. Sure. Durkheim. Right, yeah. I have to, I have to uh, quote this because uh, it's uh, very special. The person who, being really on the way, falls upon <laughs> God bless Excuse me. the person who, being really on the way, falls upon hard times in the world will not, as a consequence, turn to that friend who offers him refuge and comfort and encourages their old self to survive. Rather. He will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help him to risk himself, risk himself, so that he may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it, only to the extent that a person exposes himself over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within, in this daring lie dignity and the spirit of awakening. That's fantastic. Yes. So let's talk about that risk. I think that that's the crux of it here. Well, before I say something about the risk, it actually makes me also think about the death of this saint, this wonderful woman, Siddhi Ma. Um, and with her death, um, I see almost a, a kind of transmission to you, Raghu, and to those who knew and love her. Um, you have to become Siddhi Ma. <laughs> you know, it's not like you can now go and hold her hand and say, here, bless me, and, you know, fill me with your love and tell me the stories and so forth. You now carry her. Mm. And this becomes, you go through her loss and death and you grieve. And it's very, it's, it's honorable. And then if you ask her, okay, Ma, I've grieved, I feel the loss, I, 
I wept and she acknowledged it. She wouldn't turn away from your tears. And then she would, you'd say, so what now, Ma? And you'd say, okay, Raghu. All right. Now you must become Zidi Ma. You must carry this. And so in some way, as you, as she dies and as something dies for you, then something new that's more indestructible gets born in you. Thank you. And, and you carry that. And then you say, oh, I'm unworthy. I don't have, I mean, she was great and I'm small. She was wise, whatever. Nonsense. No, I'm sorry. You have your, you have your task. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, what Durkheim is saying to us, um, we're all going to go through loss. We're all going to go through difficulty. It's part of the human lot. It's part of human incarnation. How do you do it? Oh, poor me. Oh, it shouldn't have happened. Oh, I'm unworthy. Oh, you know, all the kind of ways that we can get, um, sadly, that we can lose a sense of our own dignity and our own own capacity and get overwhelmed and it happens. We all get overwhelmed too. But those very difficulties he's saying, those are the places where we learn the real deal, where we learn what it means to stand up again, to love in spite of, you know, to bring our best to the world, to not be taken over by the kind of marketing of terror and let it take over our hearts to say, this is not what I will carry. And this is not who I am in this world, you know, to go through the very great many people listening have in their families and communities and loss and, and the, uh, you know, the medical calamities and other kinds of things like that. And then of course, the tears we carry and concern for the vulnerable of the world in so many ways around us and beyond. Um, and to say, all right, let me die to some small, fearful self. In Buddhism, it's called the small self or the body of fear. And let me remember, oh, nobly born, that I too am the sons and daughters, you too, whoever is listening, are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones that you are placed here as consciousness itself, you've taken birth and you can do beautiful things in this world. Even in the smallest gesture, it doesn't mean you have to go out and, you know, save the world. You save the world with each gesture of kindness. You save the world with every beautiful child that you raise, with every conscious business that you start, with every, um, with every, time you go and drive you have a chance to drive in a way that is respectful of this world that we share and those around us and somehow you become the light that you want the world to be hmm. i like th i like the word risk in all of this because that's something that many of us don't want to take a risk uh it implies encountering something bigger than ourselves or 
feeling of this is more than what I can handle. And so it's it's easy not to take that risk. That's why I love this little this little passage, and and that risk implies courage. Yes, I think they're connected very much. So, well, there's two kinds of the risk. You know, the thing is that the risk will find you. You you know, you can take it, but it's going to come anyway. In some way, you're going to have difficulties. It's just how it is. And one part of the risk is, can you risk feeling it and bearing it and go through it? You know, the risk to go through the loss, the risk to go through what is difficult, the risk to go through a confrontation, the risk to stand up for what you believe and give voice to it, even if it's not what others are saying, but you know it to be true in your heart. The risk to be true to yourself and not what others expect of you. Those are all risks. Um, that ennoble us. We are going to have devastating things happen to us because we all get old and sick and die, for example. That's one small little devastating thing, right? <laughs> um, and many other, and that happens to everybody else around us. You look around and say, to whom will that happen? Holy Caroli, as they'd say, everybody. You know, and in not many years, almost all the people that are my peers and the people I love and have gone through, you know, 70 some years of life with all gone. That's the truth. So we don't even have to look for risk. Living is risky and then we <laughs> die. Right. But how do we carry ourselves? Can we speak up for what matters? Can we stand for what's right? Since we're going to die anyway, we might as well make it a magnificent dance, you know, <laughs> You know, in the past, we've, uh, you and I have talked uh, quite a bit about anger, and we've had a bit of similar back backgrounds with angry fathers. And, uh, and in the book, you do talk also about uh, the value. There's a value, anger as a value is a legitimate uh, thing. So I love that. But, uh, I, I think it'd be great to, uh, there's one story that if you don't mind telling it, it's the uh, story of you uh, trying to get a Cohen, Cohen right with uh, Joshu Sasaki Roshi. Do you recall that? I, I know this story very well. You know, anger is a, in, in the Greek tradition, it's called a noble emotion. Mm. because anger has tremendous, can have tremendous clarity with it. Um, you know, it's noble when it's used in the service of um, some higher values and so forth. The problem is that often when we act on anger and we get overcome by the emotion of it, we're actually not very skillful. But, and if we look really honestly underneath our anger, there's hurt and pain and fear and often if we can express and acknowledge this is the pain or this is the hurt to another person, instead of being angry with them, say, I really feel hurt when you say that. I'm really afraid when this happens around. Um, people listen in a very different way. We get a much more useful response than the anger that also has blame in it. But there's a clarity in anger that says there's something wrong here. And it really needs our attention and often it needs our action. Um, and so, you know, people think, well, getting angry isn't spiritual. 
So there I was with Joshu Sasaki Roshi, who is this um, one of the oldest and most respected um, Rinzai Zen masters in the world who lived in the West for a long time. He had some other problems. Um, unfortunately, as a womanizer and other things like that, which we also hear about in the spiritual world. But anyway, and I was sitting one of my first retreats or session with him and he'd be a koa and then you'd sit and sit and sit and do a little walking and sit and then they'd ring the bell and then you had to run and get in line and go and see him and answer the koan. Four times a day you would see this and he'd sat there like a mountain and you'd go in and he would say koan and I would say what is the sound of one hand clapping or you know which is a famous and koan or does a dog have Buddha nature he gave me a different koan than that which I won't say but and I'd give him my answer and he looked back at me and he would shake his head oh no good and ring the bell and then I go in rush back after four hours more of sitting he'd say koan and I'd say what is the sound of one hand clapping he, and he'd say and they'd look at me and he'd say what is the sound of one hand clapping and the minute he asked the koan all rules are off you can do whatever you can to answer it and I thought my koan had to do with letting go, dying, being reborn. So I flung myself up in the air and fell down on the ground and <laughs> died. And after lying there for a while, I sort of opened my eyes and peeked at him. And he said, oh, are you a teacher? No good. And rang the bell. Not dead either. You know, and then I went in another time and tried to answer it badly. And he said, oh, 2%. No good. You know, and then another time he said, oh, you ah, too much thinking, rang the bell, and over and over and over again. And I was getting more and more and more frustrated. I went in again. He said, oh, yeah, yesterday, 2%, today, 1%, ring the bell. And I started to get very angry, like over and over. And he was, you know, pushing my buttons, you teacher, come on. So I, I was furious. Um, and I went in to see him. Sitting, sitting, they ring the bell, rush, get in line. And I thought, I am just really pissed. And he's a Zen master. He should be able to deal with this. So I go in and I bow. And he looks at me and he says, koan. And I look <laughs> at him and I say, fuck you, Roshi. And I put, <laughs> put out his candle with my hand and I grab the bell and I ring it myself. And I start marching out, quite pleased with myself. And as I get <laughs> to the door I hear him say, oh, no, not the answer, you know. <laughs> and, and it was a great moment, firstly, because Zen allows for everything. All right, show me your anger. Here it is. All right, not quite the answer to your koan. See what else you got. Show me everything. Mm -hmm. I did eventually get an answer to the koan that satisfied him. But in the process, it was a kind of letting go of everything I thought and who I was letting all the emotions all the, let it all spill out and he would just no 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 good keep coming until finally i was somehow empty and i could see with the eyes that he had to see mm. the answer to this koan mm. so great yeah story. yeah i love that oh boy well uh, as i mentioned to you before we got on i had had uh, a very uh, insightful uh, podcast with a man named uh, Dr. Robert Svoboda, 
who uh, had a, an amazing teacher in India in the 70s, kind of around the time when we were all there. And um, and he wrote these books uh, around the Agoris and his teacher, who was an Agora practitioner, and uh, which Tantra is a central part of their practice. And the third book was around the law of karma, and we, we did this thing around it, and it just stimulated me to, to want to discuss with you a little bit uh, around karma, one of the things th- that uh, he said, and I'll quote a few different things and we can just sort of comment on it, uh, that, that got me, Krishna from the Bhagavad Tam, Krishna said, karma is the guru. Nay, it is the supreme lord. And this is from the Srimad Bhagavatam. And, and that kind of started our whole conversation off around the import of having awareness of what karma is and its effect in terms of our, not in the big philosophical thing, karma, or in the, I'll poke you in the eye and you're going to poke me back, cause, you know, the, the, uh, the materialistic cause and effect thing. But can you just talk a little bit about what, in, in the t- teachings of uh, certainly Buddhist teachings, and just uh, karma and, and our experience of the world and what karma is and how we experience it. Well, daily I'd, life. Like to, I'd like to talk about it in a very simple way because there's cosmological ways of what is the karma that you make from one lifetime or birth to another, which is not really available to most people to see or know. So it would only be a kind of intellectual belief. But when he says karma is the guru, what he means is that, at least from my sense of it, and it's beautiful, is that we can observe that how we act and move through the world creates the kind of life and world that we will have. So that if we treat people angrily and disrespectfully, after a while, the world is going to get angry and disrespectful back to us. And we see it. That's what happens. If we treat the world with love and compassion and kindness and so forth, not only do we become that, but the world starts to also respond to us in that way. And you know the people that you care about who are the most loving or the most caring, how you see them, how you respond to them, how you care about them because it goes both ways. So you begin, the first thing is that you begin to see that the first verse of the Dhammapada, the great, this text begins, mind and heart is the forerunner of all things and how we tend our heart and mind and and then use that to express ourselves creates the kind of life and world that we'll experience. Doesn't mean we won't have pleasure and pain and gain and loss, but as we go through these things, we go through them in completely different ways. So that when Nelson Mandela walked out of 27 years in Robben Island prison with so much magnanimity and generosity of heart, so much compassion and forgiveness and wisdom, they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. That that spirit that he had changed it. South Africa and change the imagination of the world in some beautiful way. So this is really what karma means, that you can see how you are, how you tend your heart, how you act, becomes the way 
that you move through the world and how the world responds to you. Now, the beautiful thing is that it's available moment to moment. And this is where it's most helpful because the key to karma is intention. Jaitana is its word in Pali or Sanskrit. Um, and so, uh, for example, if you, if a guy gets in his car, pulls out of his driveway and crashes through the gate of the next door neighbor and smashes into his living room because he's angry that his neighbor cut down the trees that bordered their property and, you know, threw rocks at his dogs. And it was just a terrible neighbor in all these ways. Then the police will come with their blue lights and cart him off and handcuffs and so forth. But if a guy pulls out of his driveway, crashes through the gate and into the living room of the house of the neighbor next door, cause his accelerator pedal stuck in the car and he couldn't stop it. Um, same guy, same car, same crash. All the physical things are identical, mm. but the intention was different. Mm. You know, the guy might be upset whose home it was, but he'll come out. Are you all right? Were you hurt? Let's call the ambulance. You know, let's see what insurance we have. The response is entirely different because the intention was different. And when you're in a conversation with somebody, let's say you're in conflict with a person, or it's a difficult conversation, or even if you're texting or emailing with someone and there's problems, if you can take a break, take a moment, pause, take a few breaths, and say, well, what's my best intention? Or what's my highest intention? And very often in that conflict, whether it's in your family or work or community or something, when you stop and ask that question, the answer will come, well, I want to work this out. You know, instead of I want to prove that I'm right and so forth, that underneath my very best intention is more based on love, more based on connection, more based on working things out in some way because we have to live together as creatures. And when you feel that, then you look at the text you composed or the email or you feel what's about to come out of your mouth and you change the words. You realize, oh, when I send this, it's really the way I wrote it. It's aggressive and attacking and it's going to get more of that back. But actually, I really do want to solve it. I want to connect with them. Let me change those words. Or even when you say what you have to say to that person, instead of attacking, you can say, this is really hard for me. Or, you know, this really hurts or this scares me in this way. And, and your whole tone of voice changes talking about the very same problem because your intention has changed. So this is really the, the way that we understand karma moment to moment. And if you understand that, all the rest of karma will take care of itself. Mm -hmm. Well, what it reminds me, too, is the idea that, uh, well, we are constantly creating new karma. That's correct. Moment. And yeah. we at the same time, it's like, we can, um, it get, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity yes. to change what our future. Absolutely. Is. That's beautiful and quite correct. Yeah. So, uh, I think one of the most difficult things around creating karma is, is the self-identification with actions. 
and reactions most particularly. And uh, he said, the more strongly we identify with our karmic actions, the more closely our experience will conform to the reaction they promise, as you just mentioned in in that example. Uh, I think that there's one great concept, actually, from the book around creating spaciousness and creating a gap uh, that goes a long way to helping um, move our karma into a a positive uh, direction and so maybe talk a little bit about creating the gap in the spaciousness that allows us to make the the, that little little turn well that Uh, was exactly what i was saying that when you can take three breaths or two mm -hmm. breaths in a conflict or in a situation that's difficult or dicey or problematic um and as you quiet yourself for those moments, then you can ask, what's, what's my best intention? What's my highest intention? And the heart then becomes the guide rather than reactivity or the ideas, okay, I'm going to, you know, make sure they know I'm right and they're wrong or, or whatever it happens to be. The ability to take that loving, mindful pause is part of what grows as we develop a meditation practice, Mm. as we walk in the mountains, as we quiet the mind and tend the heart in whatever spiritual way we can, as we chant or as we do whatever our nourishing spiritual practices, that brings us back to ourselves. And then when these things escalate, like, oh, let me take a pause, let me take a breath, let me listen to what my heart might say that I could do as a response. And it's why, in a certain way, why we practice not to get something or have some special state, but actually to be available to life with our heart. It's not about self-improvement. It's really about being available to love, love in ourselves, love to others, becoming that loving awareness. And then the availability of those gaps and those spaces, Mm -hmm. instead of being the doer who's always trying to get things done and finish and conflict and make and so forth, we can be. Mm. As Ramna said in his very first book, Be Here Now, (laughs) we can actually be where we are Mm. and tend it, tend this life and those people that we're with and so forth with a more spacious and loving heart. Um, Because our identity shifts. We're not so much the one who's doing it in conflict. We're the loving awareness that say, all right, how do we how do we respond? What's the, the most, the, the, the highest or the, the, you know, the best intention we have? Mm. Well, that just brings up one, one interesting thing that uh, uh, is part of this whole dance, and that is when we speak about intention, we speak about an action that... Uh, we hope will result in positive karmas, obviously. So I think we need to talk a little bit about free will and fate here. And from your point of view and and everything that you've garnished over the, garnered over the years, how do you, how do you see that? Uh, I'd rather talk about it this way because that gets philosophical for some people, puts them in their heads. Um, Hmm. 
and Thomas Merton explained it beautifully, the Christian mystic to a somewhat burned out, a young activist. He said, um, as you do the work for justice, as you do the work for the care of humanity or the earth and so forth, he said, your, uh, your task is to plant beautiful seeds um, and to be to carefully tend your best intention. So the intention isn't to you know get over on somebody or fight with somebody, but it's to really make something happen. He said, and then as you do this work, sometimes it will succeed, sometimes it won't, sometimes it might even bring about its opposite. This is not up to you. Um, more and more, what's necessary, he went on, is for you to simply concentrate on the value, the truth, and the rightness of the work you do. And so, again, the, the beautiful teaching is um, that you get to plant the seeds of karma, but it's not up to you to determine the fruit, which is to say you get the, the simplest way is to act beautifully without attachments to the results. Because you don't get to choose when the results happen and how they will be. They might happen much further down the line. It's not up to you. But what's up to you is how do you carry yourself? And what seeds of beauty do you water in this world and do you plant? Um, and that's really the key to karma and intention. Hmm. Beautifully said. Well, we're, we're uh, probably out of time here. I don't want to take up any more of your time. And uh, I do... Oh, I want to thank you for being here in in, in this moment for me. Actually, uh, it's uh, uh, very warm and connective, as you always are, in any of the time that we've spent together. So I appreciate you. I really do. Thank you, Raghu, and I'm glad to do this. And you know, thinking about all those who are listening, I'm grateful for your attention. And for the goodness in you or for the wisdom or for the loving awareness that is your true nature that you can trust and that we're in this all together. Mm. So it's a pleasure to be part of the podcast. Thank you, Raghu. Mm. And uh, please, everybody, no time like the present, and there is no time like the present to go and get no time like the present. Uh, see, yes, what? here we are. <laughs> no time like the present. Perfect. There we yeah. Are. yeah. Yeah. It's a, a wonderful book. And uh, as I said, we can do, uh, we'll, we probably will do a few more podcasts around Who this knows? over the years. Yeah. So uh, again, thank you very much. And uh, everybody, go to beherenownetwork.com slash mindrolling, and you're going to see links to get the book and links to any of the other things that we've been talking about and highlights and show notes. Uh, make it easy for everybody to. Uh, to get in to get an, a, a feel for the podcast and uh, we shall see you next week on my Thank you.